Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I'm excited to welcome David Lynch as my guest. David is the CEO and co-founder of Clear, a company building the all-in-one operating system for water. Have you ever asked yourself what really made our water industry so different from another? Well, David did. And as he'll explain in a minute, he cracked the code as to why specific challenges require distinctive solutions. Today, we discuss the digitization of water processes, but with a fresh angle and a twist, and I'm not spoiling it. And while this is honestly of interest for anybody, I've learned quite a bunch of things in this discussion, it will be specifically of interest if you're an experienced water professional preparing his retirement and legacy, if you're running a team featuring this kind of profile, or if you're a new manager just taking over your role in our so specific water industry. So if you want to get to know the saxophone of water softwares or follow the path of a company that just raised $16 million of Series A a couple of months ago, bear with me. Right before, let me remind you that if you like what you hear, please share this episode with a couple of colleagues or friends. Did my profiling seconds ago ring a bell as to who of your contacts shall listen to this? Then forward them this podcast with my best regards. You'll do it, right? You promise? Then I'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So happy to be here. So from your much, I can notice a little bit of this Irish accent we had on the podcast already, but you're sending a postcard from Toronto. So what can you tell me about Toronto, which I would ignore by now? Yeah, I know you've had other Irish people on the podcast, so uh, I think we are supposed to be the sexiest accent in the world, but that definitely doesn't beat the French, I don't think. <laughs> um, yeah, so talking to you uh, today from Toronto, it's a balmy minus 28 degrees Celsius, which Irish people are most definitely not built for, but it's a great city. I actually have to say one of, one of the reasons when we moved from, from Ireland over here was uh, really the diversity. They say it's a city where everyone's from somewhere and I think that's brilliant like I think that's what I love about the city you're you're accepted no matter where you're from or, or what your what your creator color or background is so that makes for an interesting transition because you're coming from a field which is this IT field even if it's sustainable IT environmental IT and you're trying to move something in the water industry which brings me to a very simple question how do you get accepted as a newcomer is it exactly like Toronto style or do you have to make a dent into, into that market? Oh, you definitely have to make a dent. You know, particularly in, in water, it's definitely a, a much more conservative industry. You know, I know a lot of my colleagues and other companies sort of rail a little bit against, you know, how conservative they are. But having spent my entire career working with water professionals, like they're conservative for a reason. You know, we can't just like if we get a shiny new piece of technology, deploy it any given day, because, you know, what we're doing is a, is a seriously important production. 24-7. I think it's a good thing that you have to come with credentials, prove your worth. I was lucky that I got the experience in in Ireland and got to travel around Europe and get experience and then be able to take that reputation a little bit to North America, but definitely had to rebuild it again. But something I'm, I'm actually pretty happy doing. Talking of what you're happy doing, what's your elevator pitch to clear? Yeah. So for clear, basically what we say is it's the operating system for water. My experience is pretty much working in the trenches, working with water professionals day in, day out. And we know that water operates as one single interconnected system, albeit a system of chaos. Uh, but it is, uh, it is one single cycle and one single system. And yet that's not how it is managed today. So basically what clear is, it's this one single platform that manages and will eventually manage at a watershed or a water catchment base approach what happens and what activities are, are taking place inside that watershed with the ultimate aim to be able to, in essence, collaborate and make water better. 
That's a neat pitch. We go inside and deconstruct the various elements in just a minute. But I have a last stop before going into plunging into that deep dive. And I've discovered a term when having a look at your, at your path, and that's RecTech. So what is RecTech? RecTech is something that came from like the financial sector, whereby, you know, if you're a bank or you're a financial institution, a large part of your business is making sure you adhere to different regulations. And when we started off, Clear, we thought we were in that category. It can also apply to health and safety and, and that side of it. And just applying that to water and basically using the tools and technology that you need to make sure your regulatory have regulatory compliance. What we know, though, about water, and this is the nuance, which I think, you know, a lot of people don't understand is if you're thinking about like a, a soft drinks company or a bank, their core purpose is not to be compliant. Their core purpose is to make money or to deliver value to their shareholders. And regulation is something that's implemented to make sure that there's balance in the market and that it doesn't run away with itself. Where if you actually take water, the whole purpose of a water authority or a water utility or a water municipal delivery of services is to deliver safe and secure water. And that's in essence what regulations are. So the core part of a water authority's business is not to have the best looking pipe or the best bulb or the best whatever. The core job is to deliver safe and secure water with whatever tools uh, you think are best and mo most suited. Uh, so it often gets lost that I think in the construct of how water service is delivered today, that we have, let's optimize engineering or let's optimize operations, but does it actually make water better? Is this improving our ability to deliver safe and secure water services? And I think that's what sometimes gets missed. Because even if you have the best engineering department in the world, it doesn't mean that you're you're going to deliver the best services or they're not correlated. So when you think about it, the entire purpose of, of that authority is basically regulation. And uh, there's nuance to that uh, in that sometimes regulation doesn't always align to safe and secure services, but that tends to be more in the implementation side. But the principles are solid. It's very very, very, and still I underestimate it when I, when I say that. It's very interesting what you just said, because we are somewhere at episode 80 of that podcast, and uh, the spin you're giving to that is unique. It's the first time I heard that, and it makes a lot of sense that this regulatory aspect is at the center of it, and that somehow we're delivering to that before everything else. I don't know if it's a good thing, by the way, but it certainly is the way we're set. So it's, it's a very interesting encapsulation, I have to say. Absolutely. You know, like, and, and I think in my experience, because my, my background is very much on the water framework directive side, which I actually, I, I love as a piece of legislation. I don't think many people will <laughs> go around and say they love particular legislation, but I, I love it because it's a relatively simple piece of legislation, like 13 pages or so long, but the technical implication is much, much more difficult. But the principle is, is takes a, you know, an epidemiological approach and just making sure that you protect the health of the water. And then you can use various tools and various different techniques to try and protect that. Now, the implementation and when regulation comes along, a lot of vested interests that's come in, a lot of interpretation plays into it. But what's great about the Water Framework Directive is if, for example, if you're a, a wastewater treatment authority and, you know, let's say you're discharging to a local river and the, the nitrate level of the river needs to be below 10 milligrams per liter or something like that. If it arrives at your pipe at nine milligrams or where you're discharging and you're just discharging two, traditionally, you would be the person who is making that water body non-compliant. But what the framework allows and the, the principles behind proper good regulation is uh, it allows you to challenge that. and allows you to say, I'm not uh, putting in this massively cost ineffective uh, nutrient reduction program or, or treatment of my facility. And I'm actually going to challenge the, the licensing limits you've put on me. I'm going to challenge to say, this is, this is happening upstream. Maybe it's runoff from agriculture or whatever, maybe. And I'm going to challenge the limits you're placing on me. So if you allow this flexibility and pragmatism into regulation and allow a, a structure to challenge it, it works. But what the problem with so much regulation is it's very much a stick that's like, you must do it to this level or else or you must do these jobs or else. And when we set out to build clear and to deliver this type, it's that you can actually orient your tasks, all the work you're doing and saying, you know, initially make a challenge to regulators on your limits, but also ask the question, like, what is actually making water better? And that's what this is all about. There's a lot I'd like to unpack in what you just said, but I have to, to put them in the fridge and let me come back to that later. 
what you're saying is that that sector has to undergo some transformations. And some of these transformations have to do with the digitization aspect of it. Do, do I get that right? First, to have the, the right starting point. Yeah, that's exactly it. And you think you have clever ideas to support in that. And then we can deconstruct why. So the why elements. But let's start with the how. And the how is that you say that you have clever ideas on, on this digitization path and you can help the sector get better and more efficient and, and a lot of different stuff with, with clear. But why do you think that you have something special and different to answer that specific question on the how to get better as a sector? I suppose I'll take that as a question of, of maybe why does the sector need another piece of software or platform in clear? You know, maybe maybe that's the, the way to address it. And I think um, the way we've thought about it is, first off, there's lots and lots of software there today. There's lots and lots of tools that you can use to manage a singular process in your authority or manage a particular job that needs to be done. But the problem with a lot of the software in the market today is, first of all, they were made for different verticals. They were made for health and safety. They were made for electricity transmission or something something like that. And then they've sort of, maybe you'll have to cut out this, <laughs> bastardize those software, uh, so forgive my French, and turn it into something that sort of works for water. And it goes back to that initial thing I said at the top, which is the nuance of water is that regulation is aligned and the jobs we're doing is in the safe and secure delivery of water services. Sorry to catch you, but, but to that extent, do you think the water sector is very different from the energy sector, for instance? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. There's a couple of reasons that it's different from the energy sector. First of all, there's a huge, like and I know there's arguments against this, but there's a huge qualitative element of the product we deliver. So is it more like a food-like product? You also have the challenge that maybe a lot of your consumers haven't intrinsically placed high value on the product you're delivering as well. And I know on your podcast before, you know, this is something that you're passionate about. It's like, do we as a species, do we as a, as communities really understand the value of the product we're getting? I think it's much more accepted that you're paying your electricity or your gas rates as opposed to uh, water is perceived as something that just falls from the sky and is sort of free. So you're delivering this sort of food thing that's sort of perceived as free. You have to maintain the quality from upstream of your catchment of what's happening up there. You need to do the production, then you need to deliver it out to your out to your end consumers. Then you need to, or, or some one of your com- colleagues needs to bring that back and treat it and discharge it. So I think you can draw similarities to different uh, markets, but it's definitely not the same as electricity or gas. And I think the people, I would also argue, in water are fundamentally different. And, um, you know, I, I often say when I spend time in the field, you know, w- when we see posters of our local community heroes, we see the firefighter, the paramedic and the doctor or the police officer. We don't see the water person. And I can't really understand that because it's the number one health advancement in our species is the chlorination of water. Uh, it's more for human health than anything else. This is a job, a thankless job that's done 24-7. It doesn't command the same pay rates as other sectors, but the people who work in water um, have a very, very deep-rooted sense of their community, very, very passionate about the job they do. They really are very, very tightly aligned to the mission of what their authority does, which is delivery of this service to their community. So these nuances about the people in the field and the product we're delivering, I think is often under underestimated and underappreciated by others in the sector. I fully get the explanation. It makes a lot of sense. So special people, special good we're working on, and special frame we are evolving in. But how does that make the tools we need different? I think we can customize other tools to work in water. It can be done, but it's a very consulting-led model, whereby the nuance of water justifies a tool to be created for its sector. So, for example, if you have a permit, a permit which can be anything from an NPDES pollution permit uh, or discharge permit to an abstraction permit, in a lot of systems that are like electricity or health and safety management, they just think that those uh, they're just a series of jobs that need to be done and they can just sit as a task list for someone to be done in a sort of a basement somewhere else. Where if you actually think about it, those the jobs that are outlined in those permits and in those jobs that need to be done are core to the to the very business and the of the uh, authority or the utility. So by basically taking components and taking tools that are now readily available and sort of tweaking them and making sure that they integrate the things like your limb system, your sampling, your SCADA systems, your SCADA systems, as well as field operating, the nuance of like working in low connectivity environments, which isn't which always isn't the case for other sectors. 
and being able to have this closed loop or the singular loop of from start to finish of the job that you need to do, did it work? Are the results in one system? Can I see that contextually within the job I need to do? And did that ultimately have an end impact on water? I think 10 years ago when we looked at software, things like mapping or things like task management, they were all companies in their own right. Those singular companies that dominated the sector. They are now features that a developer in their basement, you know, anywhere in the world can like pull these very, very quickly and create an app and deliver this service to someone. So things like mapping is not a product anymore. It's a feature that you should be seeing in a platform or a piece of software that's contextual to your business, be that water delivery or whatever it may be. So I think uh, there is definitely enough nuance in water that justifies its own product. And if you talk to people in the field, if you talk to water operators, they are sick and tired of explaining to consultants from the utility sector the difference between a pipe and a parameter. And um, you know, they want someone who gets what they do. And I think that's the, the USP and why, why Clear has grown so much and we, we've made that, that impact we have so far. Let's jump into it. Let, let's be very transparent. What is Clear? What is your scope of work? And where does it start? Where does it end? Yeah, so as, as I touched on, Clear is in essence the operating system of water. And what is at the heart of this is basically your task, the jobs that you need to do in your authority. Let's be very clear about this OS. You're thinking OS in the sense of Windows, of Mac OS, of iOS. Is really, that's the definition you, you have. I would say it's maybe if we, if we look at more uh, other similarities, it would be like Rippling is for the human resources uh, sector. Or you have Asana, maybe, or that you have, let's say, Confluence and that sort of stack of things, where basically all the jobs you need to do are in one, are in one singular environment. So it's not like that you replace the Windows that's on your PC. It's just that now we're in the sort of the second iteration of what, in essence, operating systems mean to be. So in essence, when we, when we think about operating systems, it's not like uh, the Linux or the Windows services we were before. This is about... I'm coming into work and I want to see something like Monday.com or Asana or Rippling where it just pulls all these disparate processes and systems and tasks that need to be done into one place, which is very, very tightly aligned to the objective and the mission of my business. And that's the sort of next iteration of operating systems. And that, that is what clear is for water. So that is the user interface somehow. What, what, what's the operator will see as he will be working in clear instead of any kind of other constellation of tools he may have. But on the other end of it, what exactly can you all bring into Clear on, on the, um, let's say it's behind the scenes, up to which level of depth do you go with Clear? So I would say we're rapidly investing in, in our product. Like that's where our latest round of investment is. So we have a very, very clear product roadmap. Right now, today, we have APIs that hooks into your SCADA, your telemetry, your limb systems, your customer care and billing, uh, your work order management. And so this is uh, very much a layer that ties your very, uh, and GIS as well. And it ties those very different stacks together. The way I sort of think about like what's at the heart of Clear is really the task. It's the jobs that need to be done. So what's intelligent about Clear is we start off by taking all the prescriptive tasks that are li listed in documents all around your organization. So they come from permits, from regs, and they're all either pre-populated or, or seamlessly brought into the platform. So everyone knows what everyone should do. And those tasks or those jobs, they can be kicked off by dates are pretty common, but also events to happen. So for example, if you have an E. coli breach, there's a series of tasks that need to be undertaken, uh, changing in sampling frequencies and that type of logic needs to happen. Or if there's a, heaven forbid, a terrorist attack or a spill or something like that, it basically fires off instantaneously on, on the trigger of an event, all the work that needs to be done. So the task is the core of this. And then what's great about it is at the end of the process, uh, you can validate if that task actually achieved your desired objective. So using those same signals, as we call them, it can determine like, did that job actually reduce the levels of phosphate in our water? Did that job, you know, reduce the, the amount of times? This is where our AI and ML capabilities come in in future to sort of basically get to the point of like, which of these jobs actually had the desired effect and made water better? So the way I sort of, the analogy I would use is I think in the water sector today, we have lots and lots of tools coming out, lots and lots of alarms and lots and lots of fancy systems that are saying we can predict leaks or issues in your water. But what happens after that alarm is sounded? And typically, typically speaking, 
that is all an offline process. So you get these great tools, this AI, ML, you know, all this fancy stuff. But what happens when you learn something or when it tells you something? And that generally is done by email or by text, or it goes into someone's head. And then as soon as they retire or leave the industry, that knowledge and that insight is, has left with them. Let me try to rephrase that just to see if, if, if I got it right. That means that whatever happens, it's broken down into a list of tasks. And then once you've completed the tasks, Clear is asking you, did, was that effective or not? And on the long run, it's going to be become better at telling you those tasks are the ones that really matter. So you shall do those and forget about these. Exactly. That's exactly it. And I think one of our customers, their director of operations said, as the water sector matures, you know, the job traditionally for operators was to press buttons. And I think what we need to move to is the operator saying, should we press that button? Um, like a very, very simplified way of saying it. But this is not about replacing people. This is about enhancing people. It, it, that's exactly it. It is about 100% about enhancing. And it's about being, a, you know, it's about operating in an environment that the people who worked in water at this point are, are only starting to see, which is we're operating in a much more constrained environment, much more regulatory heavy, much more operational challenges that are in place, and um, you know, as well as much more resource constraints in the entire sector. So it's not about reducing, it's about just becoming that a little bit more enhanced so we can face the challenges that we are going to be facing over the next 20 or 30 years. Who's the typical user of Clear today? So the, it generally, it goes from the general manager, from the CEO of Water Authority down to consultants, uh, third-party contractors, as well as uh, up to operators in the field, uh, and lab technicians. Pretty much most people in the organization will touch off at some point in Clear. The core or the power users tend to be uh, those people with regulatory reporting responsibilities at the moment, or they're managing programs for the authority, such as catchment management, such as backflow or IPT or fog or those type of initiatives or those type of teams within the utility. And what is the visibility of Clear today for the outside world? Is it something which really, like the example you, you gave, sound to me like, like really internal tools that really stay inside the utility or inside the office which is working with it. Whereas if you look at, at the way you, you communicate and the way you advise the sector, it sounds to me like you, you want to push them towards a bit more transparency and towards discussing what they do towards the outside so that it's no longer the unsung heroes, like you were saying, the special people from the water industry, but maybe not to the level of the firefighters. We cannot <laughs> compete with them, but at least that, that we get a bit of that, that message out that we've solved seven problems. Uh, we've done this, we've done that. So what's your, your vision there? So I think the first thing I learned in my experience, um, so in Europe and in America, we have these sort of consumer confidence type reporting. They're in different guises across different jurisdictions. And if you look at these things, these are completely unreadable. Like, you know, if you're not, even if you are a water professional, you're, you know, you're, the user is asking the question, is my water safe to drink? Can I drink it? And when we did a, when we did a project or when we did our first sort of first digitizing these type of approaches, we came across the sort of concept or the ethical position that I don't think authorities or, or water stewards of data should just dump their information out online for everyone to see, because that without context can be frightening. And um, so what we have found is the most optimal way is to guide consumers and guide stakeholders through what these results and what this data means. So although in principle, I think it's important for us to make information available, and it is that to, to the public, we must uh, do it with responsibility as water professionals. So I think by opening up the information as opposed to maybe the data, and like, don't hold me over, you know, obviously uh, there's nuance to that. I'm not saying we shouldn't open up the data, but I think we just, there's definitely health warnings that need, that need to come with that. And I think the benefits from that then is that if we message it right, is uh, consumers will place a greater value in water. When they understand oh my God, this is what it needed to be for water to get to me, to make sure it's safe and secure. To, these are all things that happen. This is where my water rates go. This is why I'm paying these things. I think that's going to, to help in the battle with driving uh, value and having consumers and stakeholders place that value on water. Uh, so it is very, very important to get that to get that out there. But I think there's a we need as an industry to reach consensus as best we can of what the best format is for that. But generally speaking, I think more transparency is going to be better as a whole for our industry. 
Let me come back for one second on, on the scope question, because you, your answer is absolutely clear to no, no pun intended, actually, but but <laughs> but the answer was, was very clear about what you're doing, what you plan to do. There's one vertical we didn't explore, which is the one which leads to the hardware. You said you can connect to the SCADA, you can connect to APIs and things like that, but you have no ambition at any point to go into hardware. No, no, hardware is not in our in our scope. I, I suppose what our vision and what we have in here, there's so much better people out there making so much brilliant hardware in the sector. And what we want to do is, is to be able to provide a home for that information that is coming out of the hardware into one singular platform. We don't need 100 different software solutions with 100 different dashboards in a water authority. We need a singular place where we can contextually collaborate with the same level of information. Because otherwise, we're just perpetuating the Excel problem where we have 25 different versions of Excel and the data that's in it. And I can tell you many horror stories of the consequences of that. But what this is, is just saying, I know where I can hook in, where this data, where the data and the things come from this. And what's going to happen? What happens as a result? Was that piece of hardware, was it a good purchase? Did it achieve the objectives of what we were doing? So we are not in the hardware game. We are in the, the solutions game and we're helping our end users solve a problem. And, you know, I know it's sort of shameless plug and uh, maybe, but uh, I think one of the things that's unique about Clear, and it is the most unique, and I think it's, it's the absolute catalyst for our success, is we just listen to what the users want. And I, you, you, it sounds so simple, but I can tell you, having worked in the sector for a very long time, a lot of time that's not done. We don't listen to water professionals. We go in and we tell them this is how it should be done, this is how it's done everywhere else, or this is how I think you should do it. And we don't actually listen and really open or, or go into them with both ears open and listen to what they need. And it's amazing what you will learn and amazing the, the fantastic tools you can deliver by just listening to the people who are actually doing the jobs in the field. Let me share you an anecdote about what, what you just said. Some month ago, I had Mina Sankaran, the, the CEO of Ketos, on, on that microphone, and she, she was sharing similar stuff to, to what you said with regards to you shall listen to your customer. And she said exactly what you said. She apologized, saying, oh, I, I know it sounds like uh, everybody should do that. And I was preparing the infographic after that to summarize the, what she said, and I've put that in the infographic. And then I had a chat with her a marketing director and said, are you really sure you want to put that? Because, you know, that's just... Uh, Entrepreneurship 101, everybody should know that. And that, my feeling, and still to date, is still the same, is that, yes, we shall put that because you know that that is what you should do to listen to your customer. And, and she, she knew that that is what you have to do to listen to your customer. But honestly, in our industry, that is not the norm. That is not <laughs> what everyone is doing. So I think that is still a core and, and a key message we shall share. So sorry, that just reclosing the, the, my sidetracking, but I, I think that is important to hear. So... Don't apologize to giving some simple advice on the paper, but crucial and key. And I think if I was to offer my thought process on this, I think it's because it's a very consulting-led market. You know, and, and consultants don't get paid. And like as a recovering consultant myself, we didn't get in and get the rates, um, the daily rates to to go in and, and listen and talk and like, you know, reflect and think nicely about things. We go in to be like, this is a solution and not listen. And you, you can just see it. It really grinds up against the people in the field when they're like, but would you just listen to what I'm trying to say? You know, and I think it's a, it's a one, not the only, but one of the really good things about Silicon Valley and like having gone through Y Combinator program is they just condition you in a practical level to basically build a massive microphone and a system to process all the things that come in that microphone and then build what the users need and iterate very, very quickly. So instead of, you know, buying something a consultant built 20 years ago and it's just sitting there and it's not really updated very often, but like, you know, it seems to sort of do the job. You really want to invest more. And like, if you look at any similarities such as like uh, payments processing in Silicon Valley, whereby, you know, that's one of the most heavily regulated industries in the world. You know, you're moving money at the end of the day. How does the startup get started there? Well, you know, not without pain, but by continuously iterating, rapidly delivering new features and just helping end users solve their pain. And that's what we're we're as a company set up to do is to like what we are today is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we are set up to constantly get better every single day. Uh, and that's what, when you're investing in clear, that's what you're investing in. Let me come back to the, the digital playground and battlefield, depending on how you want to see that. Do you play music? I do play music and uh, not very well, not very well, but I try. What do you play? 
I play, uh, I'm learning the piano and I've played an Irish instrument called the Bowron, which is like a drum. Completely embarrassing me now. <laughs> I'm going to be asked to play that now next time I'm, if someone sees me. The, the reason why I'm asking is that sometimes when I'm looking a bit at the, the digitization in the water industry, it makes me think of, you know, that special time, I think it was the end of the 19th century in the musical sphere, where every single inventor there was, was creating a new musical instrument. And when you look at those symphonies, which were written at the time, each of those features instruments that nobody's playing nowadays anymore, but they were there, people were writing music for those instruments. And all of a sudden there was Adolf Sachs who came along and he created the saxophone. So the saxophone or the four main saxophones. And he basically killed all the other ones just because his instrument was better, more versatile, more ready for any kind of, of music which was written at the time. And that ended that really tidal wave of instruments coming along. And where I'm going with my analogy is that nowadays, every single hardware manufacturer in the water industry I'm discussing with tells me, you know, I'm building a platform. And he knows that his platform is not going to be the one to rule them all. He just builds it to preempt a space with the hope to get to be at the table when the ones that rules them all or the couple of ones that can rule them all will be established. But we are still in this phase where there's no saxophone yet or is still in the making. It hasn't killed all the other ones. So everybody is around. Some of them, you, you watch them and, and you know it's a zombie. You know, it has no chance of walking till the end. And some others are like, okay, it's a reasonable bet. Would that be the right and what would that be the wrong? And now if you're a customer in that phase and you're a utility and you have to pick one, say, okay, how do you bet that the one you pick where you're going to invest time, money, your teams on will be still alive in five or 10 years? And in the middle of that, you're not one of these contestants. So how do you behave in that market? And how do you how do you get through the frog yourself as a company with your roadmap and your ambition to be one of the survivors, hopefully on, on the five to 10 years timeline? Yeah, well, let's uh, hopefully you've met the saxophone today. Uh, <laughs> that's we're going to be that we're going to be that. I think I think the, fir the first thing is so there's, a, there's a couple of there's a couple of threads. It's a really good question, because if you're, in, you know, if you're in the authority, like and this is the reality today, you're being inundated with so much sales material like there's so much money to be made it's like a noisy bar you know like and everyone's shouting their orders everyone's shouting what they want and at the end of the day you know what is it that they're actually trying to do or what is it they're trying to achieve and i think i like to go to the point that you should concentrate on what your core business is and just do that i think a lot of business and a lot of solutions out there try to expand it because i think it's the next shiny thing for us we are extremely myopic in what we are about we are about at tying together information and allowing water operators do their job, uh, spend less time in data administration, spend less time on trying to chase data and try and get the job done and figure out what is it I need to do today and did that job work? That's what we do and that's what we're our, our entire sense of being. And I think if if you stay laser focused on it and you have some context of the user you're serving, it will deliver for you. I do think the industry needs to consolidate a little bit on, on the digital side of it. Everyone is getting into it. There's so much solution offering, you know, so we, we definitely do need, but I, I think what's going to happen is a lot of the hardware providers are those ones that are, you know, have a core business and they're very, very good at their technology. They would be more than happy to integrate to a single platform for an industry because first of all, you will be able to procure potentially through that platform. You'll be able to buy that software, that service through it which is one of the biggest challenges for new incumbents. is like, how do I sell into water authorities or into government entities or public entities? And then I can just concentrate on, on making my technology the best that it is. So I think it's a useful thing that it happens. For the end user, when you're thinking about making these purchase decisions, the first question you want to ask is, is this some something that's at end of life or that has been around for 20 or 30 years and it's not really being improved? And it's the same as it was, and I'm really, really frustrated with it, is the first thing. And a lot of the technologies on offer today are that. Is this going to be a huge capital investment upfront? So as my Totex, it does take a 10 or 15 year payback because I have to invest so heavily in consulting to get this thing implemented, which leads me to sort of the, the sort of latter point is, you know, what we've noticed if we look at other verticals is if you try pilot projects, if you try to implement tools and software that solve problems right at hand, but in a very containerized and safe, like sandbox within a team or whatever, rather than doing 
multi-year digital transformations, that generally leads to much, much better adoption. And ultimately, when it comes to tech tools and technology, this is all about change management. It's not about the software. So I empathize that like there's so much coming at you uh, as, a, as a water user um, of like, which one should I pick? But I think you need to pick the people behind the product and say, is it are they there to do what I need to do? Are they specific to my industry? Do they have a roadmap of how they're going to help me solve the problems that are coming over the next many years? Or are they just a one-trick pony? Are they this thing that they say, uh, they, I'm buying them today and they say they'll develop things in the future, but there's no guarantee of that happening. So look at their core mission and make sure it applies to, or you know, ha- has great alignment to your own mission will be sort of my advice uh, on the other side of the table. To that extent, who's your ideal customer or who's the one you can help the most? Is it the early adopter who potentially already has 10 platforms and you would be the 11th and maybe the one to rule them all? Or is it more of the laggard is not a mean way to, to define it, but let's say someone who would be a bit later to the game? It's a really good question. For me, when I look at the, the I suppose, the growth trajectory and the, the amount of customers we brought on very quickly and who's adopted us, there's definitely an innovative element. So those who are looking for a better way to do something, those who are you know actively looking for not being in Excel, definitely is the you know our ideal customer. There's a couple of sort of people who it, it tends to be. If you're approaching retirement, and uh, there's definitely a group of people who are like, I have all this information in my head, and I'm about to leave in one, two, three, four years, and I don't know who or what or how they're going to manage this without what's in my head. So they undertake this uh, at a very sort of small basis, nearly on a pilot basis, a mechanism to codify or systemize that human knowledge that they've built up. So that tends to be a a very often repeated use case that we see. Uh, The second scenario generally is someone who's just recently promoted into a management role. They've just come in after that person uh, has left maybe or in a newly created role or they've moved on. They uh, look at it across their purview and they're saying, oh my God, this is all the things I need to do. If I miss some of this, I could go to jail. I could get non-compliance violations. I might can promote. I might get promoted. Uh, I could, you know, any any array of these terrible things that can happen. And they want a singular way to see across the purview all the stuff that they need to do. In a lot of those cases, what we do find is we are switching off a lot of legacy IT systems. Doesn't tend to be any of the the newer market entrants. And uh, what we find is the contextual collaboration nearly negates the need for them over time. So the fact that they can talk to other people around their organization, they can uh, record the, the conversations in the chat and talk during those conversations, be talking about this, the actual data that they're trying to reference. But it does tend to be a lot of the Excel displacements, a lot of custom application development, and, and of course, some of the, the, the old known uh, companies, which shall remain nameless, but we all know who they are. And then I think what is happening I suppose when it comes to the newer entrants, what's happening is they are getting a little bit, um, I would say, contained in particular teams uh, because like, what's happening is the IT team are saying, listen, I don't want to manage uh, 50, 100 different applications. We need a sort of a unified digital transformation strategy. Like, Where are they going? How can we rationalize this IT down and protect ourselves from a lot of different systems which are just opening up to, to more cybersecurity risks? And how can we consolidate here? And it, it tends to be that platforms like Clear can offer solutions to that because it is all about rationalizing IT. I have a, a couple of questions on the business side of things. Let's start with the elephant in the room somehow. Uh, you've closed a, a Series A, right, of 16 millions uh, end of last year. Yeah, yeah. Which places you in quite a special position in this industry because already the amount is not common within the water industry, first. And second, because the profile of an investor is, I would say, also quite uncommon because it's, it's venture capital money, which places you on the path for hypergrowth, theoretically speaking, because that's supposed to be what comes together with, with VC money. So what is your vision? What does it unveil you in terms of, of perspective to have this, this backing and this, this path for hypergrowth? Thank you for not calling me the elephant, uh, because I'm this. If you don't know one who knows me, I'm this big six foot six person, and that's normally the joke that's cracked. Um, so uh, thank you for that. First off, yeah, listen, it, you know, obviously we are delighted with the, to have such incredible partners, such repu- like high reputation, one of the leading VCs in the world. See the level of growth we have enjoyed to date, uh, and back us on this next stage of our journey. So 
you know, I think straight up what's really exciting is that this is just money that we're plowing into a product for water professionals. And that's what really, really excites me. Like I, I sort of view myself like I, you know, when we even started Clear, myself and my co-founder Elaine, we asked ourselves the question of like, how could two paddies, uh, one from the middle of Ireland and one from the outskirts of Dublin, solve or help solve the world's water crisis? And we know we can't. We know it's a very, very complicated issue to solve. But what we can do is basically free up time and allow those professionals, the people who are experts, who have trained as operators, who have PhDs, who have masters, who have all these type of things, just stop doing work that can be automated, that can be assisted, and just allow them to actually solve the problems at hand. So, you know, we are just a tool. Uh, we are just a, a means for these people to do the job that our species needs them to do and our communities need them to do. And um, so I'm just so excited that we have this incredible backing, this incredible amount of resource to deliver a product that should have been in the sector 20 years ago. It should have been of this quality. And we're taking the same, uh, many of the same playbooks from other enterprise software, such as sales, HR, finance, those playbooks that have revolutionized those sectors. And we're going to be able to deliver products of that caliber to water. And, you know, if you think about a water professional, like they drive to work and they listen to podcasts, they consume media on Facebook and Instagram. They're used to a user interface that's in this century. Um, and I think it's time that when they go to work and they sit at their desktops or they remotely log in or they or whatever it may be that they get those same levels of tools. So, yes, we are absolutely poised for hyper growth. Uh, I think it's also necessary in the sector. You know, water, as I said at the top, is um, one interconnected system. If we continue to go on and manage this in hundreds of different systems, we're not going to be able to move to the integrated catching management or integrated watershed management approach that we need. So we know what the left hand and the right hand are doing. And um, because that's the only way that we are going to successfully face the challenges that we're going to be that we're going to face over the next one to 100 years. Yet not that I want to be the party pooper at all, but that would be a first of its kind. I don't know if you've ever met Paul O'Callaghan, he's the CEO of Bluetech Research, and he's written this awesome paper on, on the dynamics of water innovation. And uh, what he's explaining is that basically innovation in this very specific market goes at a particular pace and companies' developments also goes at a particular pace. So what usually takes five years in a regular industry takes 15 years in that sector. So the timelines are a bit challenging to that extent. Is it something which puzzles you or your confidence that times will change to that extent as well? I'm not naive, I, I think is the first thing. Um, like, you know, it, it is a challenge, but like, isn't that what we are? We're, we're here to try and solve challenges that aren't easy to solve. You know, definitely it, it excites me. You know, I, since the beginning of my career in water, many of the projects that we've worked on with some of the, the most, the greatest leading minds in water, many people have said that it's not possible. It's not possible to do this. It's not possible to build these type of solutions. It's not possible to run these type of programs. Uh, be they even non-software programs or projects. So I've heard for a long time things aren't possible. Um, and then, you know, we, we founded this company and we have been able to demonstrate that this growth is possible in water and that we were able to, to grow at rates that are in many of early stage investors and in many of the benchmarks, we are number one in our stack and number one in our portfolio. So I'd sort of say, and many often I say, the proof is in the pudding. You know, if you, you know this is not a, a vaporware play we've proven we've delivered to customers and um, we're excited to be able to take that experience and that proof that we've done and, and, and just basically fuel it even more you know there is of course there's challenges there is challenges and uh, in terms of the, the cycles for innovation but i will come back to the listening to users and i think you know innovation is one massive bucket in water it spans LoRa sensors to uh, AMI technology, to UV filtration, to deploying physical infrastructure anywhere in your water, to software. If you look at the level of innovative or water innovation, there's not a, a huge amount on the software side. There's a lot on the physical side. And um, so I think it's, it's a little bit of a very, very big uh, sector that you can't apply the same uniform approach to. Uh, and I suppose, you know, it goes to quote, it's crazy until you do it. Uh, and then everyone sort of wonders how you did it. And I think that's what we're going to try. And we're going to, you know, I, I think we're, we're in a good position. We're, in, we're poised for it. We're well-funded and we're able to, uh, to take that approach. And I'm quietly confident of, uh, of looking at where we're sitting and what, what our opportunities are at the moment that we're going to be able to surprise a few people uh, over the next couple of years. What is your, your business model? Are you a software as a service? Yeah, completely software as a service and no consultancy fees. It's pretty much what you, what you see is what you get. 
it's one uh, annualized fee that um, provides sort of, you know, I think that's, that's again, really contextual and really important in our go-to-market strategy and very nuanced to this water sector is that you need to, again, listen to what the customer wants and what they need and how they report to their ratepayers. And this transparent fee is, is important to our customers in that it's not, you're not overburdened by uh, consultancy or unforeseen fees. I guess you've, you, you must have seen that video of Dave Mackler where he's, he's on, on the stage and he says R and says that that's the growth path for pirates. I think that's, that's the full sentence. So it's this AARRR framework. And given your business model, the thing you're evolving, the, the, the industry you're, you're, you're evolving in, did you identify your activation metric, that specific thing that when people do that unclear, that is, the, I mean, they can play with tons of stuff all around, but when they do that single thing, then you won because they saw that you are unique. I think the aha moment, if I was to sort of maybe uh, take it that way, you know, when people look at Clear, they go, oh, this is just another task management platform or another uh, software that's, is it really even needed in water? But I have been in many meetings and with some of the biggest names who are actually doing the, the work in water and they're sitting around a table and you're showing them the product and you're like, this is how it works. This is how different teams from different parts of the organization all collaborate and work together. And here's a use case. And it just, it, it happens at around about the 12 to 15 minute mark in, in any of these meetings. And you show them the, the, the product. And so you've done your 10 minute introductions, gone around the room and about two to three minutes into the product demo, they just say, and I, I'm repeating verbatim, what say, you've built the product that we've been talking about for years. That's the way they say it. So that when they're, when they visualize how they think water management should happen, they see what clear is and how it manifests and the ability to work so simply across multiple teams with one unified approach to water and to the mission of the authority and that they can all work in this collaborative unified way to that, that singular corporate mission. And that is their aha moment. That is just when they're like, I just need it. I want it. Get it in now. And that's when they get very, very excited about it. That tends to come from all the way from users to managers to general managers, all, you know, all across the spectrum. Uh, different levels and different or, you know, parts of the organization. That is, that is the eureka moment because what they are talking about it. They have talked that this is the way they wanted it, uh, but they could never seem to get it. There was a couple of different companies who tried to do a, an M&A strategy to try and build a product like ours. But it, of course, they don't, it doesn't, you know, at its very basic and raw roots knit together the way it needs to. Um, so that aha moment, it happens very, very early on. If I was to sort of say in terms of metrics that we measure, it, it always comes down to the task is how you collaborate when you see things like alarms going off, such as a, a detection of, of a chemical or, um, or an issue in a network and the workflows triggering off and then everything just happens, happening seamlessly. So it tends to, uh, when the task is divvied up and jobs get divvied up across the organization and they all work. And it's a little bit like your analogy earlier about the music is like when the orchestra all comes together, it's like that. Um, when they see these events happening and they see their entire orchestra just playing together in sort of a perfect symphony, that's when they go, oh my God, how did I even survive before Clear? Maybe there's lots of very, very good individual musicians, but there's something special about bringing, being able to bring all those together to play, uh, to play that symphony. What's your level of deployment today? We are in three countries. We're across uh, Canada, the US and Australia, uh, and we're across nine states in the US. And how many people are working inside Clear? If you asked me that a month ago, it would have been 20. And now we're up to, I think, 35 as of this morning. So you're, you're living the, the hypergrowth path. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's the way. Well, last question in this deep dive. You know, I have this crystal ball. You can have a look in my crystal ball. You decide if you look in 10 years, in five years, or if you're in the hypergrowth path, maybe in two years, what's your horizon for Clear? For us, it's about getting this tool into the most amount of people's hands in, in where we're operating. So we don't want to differentiate whether you're a, an authority managing or a community system manager for 5,000 all the way up to 5 million, that we have a democratic and an available product, uh, which is what we do today, uh, available for all those people to use. Um, so for me, it's about just upping the engagement, upping the amount of users that are active and clear, and that uh, seeing some of the you know, sharing some of the information and the insights that we've already gleaned across different uh, different customers to show these are the jobs that actually are, are having the most impact. These are areas you can challenge in your restrictive regulations. 
Uh, and uh, here is how you have made water better today, this week, this year. So I'm excited to be able to just get this product into as many people's hands as possible. And for me, when I look in five or 10 years, it's that I look across the sector with water professionals spending all of their time solving the challenges they're facing, being it uh, water constraints, be it uh, eutrophication, be it whatever it may be, uh, and working on those problems rather than uh, spending a day or two a week like trying to uh, uh, cajole information out of one of their colleagues in a different department or trying to find that old Excel sheet that they, they couldn't find. Let me cheat and add a last question in this deep dive. You mentioned how others have tried M&A. You've mentioned how you're on the path of hypergrowth. What's the outlook for you? Is it to become the first real water unicorn? Is it to go on an M&A towards a, a big group? Is it to go towards an IPO? Yeah, uh, I know this is sort of a lot of people wouldn't answer this question, but I will stand, I'll stand proud and answer this question. Um, for us, we want to be that, that first proper uh, water unicorn. And that's where we're putting all our every waking moment and effort behind. And the logic behind that, there, there is sort of solid logic. This is, um, I, there's a couple of reasons for it. M&A is rife in this, in the sector. There is definitely, you know, a consolidation around a couple of core entities. Like, of course, I'll, you know, you can never say never. At the end of the day, the mantra is still to get this into as many people's hands as possible. But really what we want to try and do is to IPO because I think the information we're collecting, the data we have, um, I think it's important that that has, uh, remains in a, possibly a public market ownership or some, whatever the equivalent is, be it a sort of maybe a crypto <laughs> public market or whatever the future may hold for us. I won't even start predicting that. Um, but I think it's important that there is accountability and autonomy in an organization that has such powerful data across uh, water in different jurisdictions. So IPO is exactly what we're focusing on. Um, the other aspect, when I think about on a personal level, my mission when it comes to water is I think when you do get your first proper unicorn in water, what naturally happens is it flows so much other VC dollars flow into water. So what's great about that is uh, the great thing about VC money is they know that like 90% or 80% of, of at the early stage of their investments is just going to evaporate. But what's going to happen then is we're going to have much, much more funding available for the innovation that we need in this water sector, as opposed to maybe a very laggard centric uh, model to approach uh, to innovation, which is, I think that's probably one of the contributors that, you know, maybe Paul references um, is that, you know, you're not, you're not, we're not investing in companies that it's okay to fail. Like it's, it's okay to try, you know, these, these very different things when there's such constriction around the level of availability of money uh, for innovation, you're not going to innovate very quickly. So I think the IPO route is really important for us. Uh, we want to be able to show that uh, and, and maintain the trust that our customers have put in us that we are going to be here for the long haul. I think that makes the perfect conclusion for this deep dive. So thanks a lot for that one. I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. Absolutely. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in this last section, I'll try to keep the questions short and you, you are allowed to keep the answers short. And of course, you'll see that I'm the one sidetracking, so don't worry. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? I'm actually going to go internal for this one. Um, so I, I am fortunate enough to be able to work with uh, our product team and a lot of the discovery team that are out there talking with users every day. So I can't dive into too many details, but just for commercial reasons. But what's really exciting is to run these uh, pilots or these sort of discovery-based initiatives and actually see this entire unified platform that water operators in the field can use, uh, every employee in the organization can use, and basically just do the job that needs to do every day. So anything I get to do in the product team, anything I get to do when I get to listen to uh, water users, I'm really happy and very excited to, to take part in. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Everything happens for a reason. There have been, in any startup journey, it is not easy. Um, there are a lot of challenges that come. And I know, uh, I think it was Wayne was saying the same thing. So I'm sort of reusing maybe his answer in your previous podcast. But on reflection, even in those hard days, and you wonder why it's fallen a particular way or issues have happened or, or you know, dealers fall through and whatever maybe it is, it all happens uh, for a, a reason. So it might seem like terrible in the time, but uh, it all comes good in the end. Is there something you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? I hope in my job today, it'll be much more remote focused. Uh, I hope that I may be sitting, uh, sitting in beaches or doing remote, more remote enabled work than I am today. Definitely has got much better than it has 
you know, in the more office-centric approach that we sort of we're all used to. Um, but I hope in 10 years' time, the workforce sort of, or, or the, our ways of working is caught up that we can basically uh, work wherever, whenever we want uh, would, be, would be fantastic. I'd love to be doing that. See how I'll sidetrack you here just for one minute. But you mentioned how you went from 20 to 35. Did you meet all of them physically? No. Um, and we even, uh, even in one or two of our fundraisers, we never even met the investors uh, in person. So uh, this is the new world. Um, you know, and, and even we are able to, I think one of the unique things, which is, which is cool about Clear, is we're able to, uh, you know, we've proven we can sell remotely. I think it's a lot to do with our reputation and a lot with our deep knowledge of, the, of water users and their problems they face. Uh, but it's a different world, you know, being able to sell enterprise software without meeting them, be able to raise a fund without meeting them, be able to hire people without ever meeting them is definitely new. Now, I will say, though, you know, as a company, we like remote is a great enabler. It's a great enabler of diversity, but it's really important to have the physical contact as well. So, uh, you know, we do try to balance that and, and particularly for mental health as well. It's really important and uh, that we, we, we still do. We are social creatures and that we're able to enable that through, through some sort of physical contact. So hopefully... Uh, we'll be able to do more of it in the short to medium term and uh, hopefully we'll be able to even even ourselves meet in person at the next water conference or whatever maybe. First, with pleasure. And second, I have a, a second sidetrack question and I give you a joker. You don't have to answer that one, but if you wish, I'd be happy. Given the field that you're in, you're in the digitization of something which was done with Excel and stuff like that in the past, a pandemic comes. Is there a part of you which has to admit it's a good news? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, I, I suppose the, the first thing is to recognize how difficult it has been for some people. You know, like, unfortunately, in, in everything in life, there's, there's sort of people who benefit from things more than others. There's definitely been pros and cons of the pandemic. It has been good in many ways. The digital transformation has just, you know, lit up overnight in water. And uh, what would have taken a, a long, a much longer time is definitely becoming much more prevalent and much more open technology. So like, I'm very positive about that. I am very positive in that remote work is now here to stay. One of my big passion projects is something I'm very passionate about is diversity in the workforce, um, is enabling, is, is uh, gender parity in work, um, is gender equality, is people who are, who are not in the, who do not fit the formal 13 categories of what makes you different. Uh, you know, there's so many different aspects of, of how we live our lives. So remote work has enabled people who are, who are a bit marginalized, even though it mightn't be immediately apparent to being able to come to work. And um, so I'm really, really happy. And I think like all things in life, like there are no, there's no, nothing that's truly bad and truly good. We all live on a, on a spectrum of good and bad. And I'm happy with elements of the pandemic. But, you know, I think, I think we all are. I think we've all re-baselined of what's important, even on a personal level. I'd love to see my kids going back to school and, and having physical contact. Uh, so there's good and bad things for sure. But overall, I suppose from a business perspective, it, it has been, we, we are very lucky and very fortunate to have been in the right time and in the right place. And like since I started working in water, I think 2010, it's a, it's a 10 year overnight success. Um, but, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm glad to have been here at the right place at the right time. I think it's the best possible answer to a curveball. So uh, congrats for that one. <laughs> Sorry about the question. Um, Not at all. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? There's a couple of aspects to this. Is the old way of thinking and how it's all been done before, that's gone. And if you're not moving forward, uh, you know, you are going to be left behind. So I think we have a rapidly changing workforce. To touch on my, my previous point, we are getting more diverse in the water sector as well. We are bringing more women into water which is critically important to how we're actually going to solve this problem. Like I'm, I'm an engineer, a mechanical engineer by trade. And so I know that engineers always have one solution to, to every problem, which is to build something or to, to do it that way. Where I think a more um, holistic, uh, collaborative, uh, integrated approach is what's going to help us solve this, this challenge. And uh, so I'm really excited, you know, to see that diversity coming into the workforce and to see that new perspective, to see more new ideas come in. And even, you know, like that's not limited to age or gender or anything. We are 100% as an industry uh, becoming much, much more open-minded, I think, as we, as we face into the challenges, because we know there's no other way. This is, the, this is the new reality. If you were a world political leader, what would be your first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? I'm going to be boring here and I'm going to reuse, I think, what a few of your guests have been for, but we need to get, we need to really round up and get a value on water. Um, we need to place a, place a price on it. 
we need to, as a species, understand and we need to um, to understand the value and the importance of water has. You, you know, it just is a completely unsustainable model that we have when it comes to water. And we need much more equality. Like, you know, this is not limited to particular jurisdictions. You know, you would think that one of the most developed countries in the world doesn't have uh, water poverty. It does. Yet we do have people making money on uh, water trading. You know, and then all the while, uh, people will go out and spend however much they do on bottled water in the store, but are, are, will argue against paying their municipal bill. So we just need to, you know, and listen, I come from Ireland, like the, there is another case of, you know, a, a, an incredible historic case study on, on the implementation of water charges. But like we just, as a species, we need to we need to just like shake our head and realize that this is something that we just can't, we, we can't forget about and we need to place a value and a price on it. Last question. Would you have someone to recommend me to invite on that same microphone? You've had so many incredible guests, so it's difficult to uh, to whittle it down. But one of the one of the people who I've continuously been impressed by, and I'm just as you'll probably know from listening to me, I, I just love people who water operators, water experts. I would recommend Dave Johnson from Southern Nevada Water Authority, an incredible thought leader in the in the sector, uh, balancing the you know actually doing what he needs to do uh, or doing what's happening in the field, making these decisions with incredible innovation and one of the most innovative, progressive, best managed water authorities in the world. And so I would definitely, uh, I think he would bring a unique insight of like the practicalities of what's happening in the field. Perfect. So thanks a lot. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.